God, I do lift up this group of people here tonight, and I lift up um, our time in your word, and I ask, God, that we would come with hearts that are so hungry for you and, Lord, wanting to know what you have to say to us. And, Lord, you can speak powerfully through your word in ways that I, I struggle to fathom. Um, and, God, I, I pray that you would show us just the depth of this text tonight. Lord, take us places that only you can take us as we look at it. And, Lord, it's one thing to read and understand something that's written by men, but it's another thing to read and understand something that's been written by God Almighty. And so, Lord, we recognize this as your word, and we just want to apply it to our lives. Uh, we don't want to read into it. We want to read it. We want to exegete from it, Lord, what we need so that we can walk in, in a way that's worthy of our calling. And so, Lord, we just thank you for this chance to be in your word tonight. Would you bless it? Would you speak to us? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Chuck Smith, uh, who I was um, privileged to be at Bible College in Southern California when he was still teaching and still making um, the, the regular Friday lectures there when I was young, when I was a young whippersnapper. Um, and Chuck, um, he had his own beatitude that he submitted for consideration. And this isn't in Matthew chapter five, but his beatitude was this. He said, blessed are the flexible for they shall not be broken. And um, it's funny because I think we understand how bad rigidity can be. See, for example, the Titanic. Um, and, and I think that we understand that there needs to be some flex in us to deal with the blows that life's going to throw at us, so to speak. Um, and balance in life can be a, a difficult thing. And we have to embrace the importance of being firm in our faith, but at the same time being flexible when things aren't going the way that we want them to be. We have to be firm and flexible at the same time. We have to be firm in what we know to be true, but we have to be flexible when, you know, situations in our life are not what we would think even that God would want us to be facing. You ever been in a situation like, surely God does not want this for me, you know, and it's just because it's a harsh situation, it's something that's difficult and we're like, well, you know, we understand that people in, in the world a lot of times will start to doubt the goodness of God just because bad things are happening in their life. Well, how can a good God let bad things happen to people? Um, and, and, and to that, you know, I love responding the way that Frank Turek does in, in gentleness, not in arrogance, that the only reason you understand that it's bad and that it's good is because there's a standard for what good is. Um, you wouldn't even know that what's happening to you is bad if there was no standard of good. And God is that standard of what good is. And so um, the idea for us as believers is to be flexible when things aren't the way that we expect them to be, when they're not as easy as we'd like them to be. We're to bend but not break. We're to be weak and yet strong. We're to be wise and yet innocent. And these ideas, we understand these things from Scripture, that these things are taught when, when Jesus says you need to be wise as serpents but innocent as doves. You know, and, and that in our weakness, he is strong, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 12. And so when we think about these different concepts in Scripture, we understand that there's a balance to life. There's a balance of having these things all apply to us. It's the same situation as we look at the justice of God, and then you look at the grace of God. You know, he is, is he gracious or is he just? Yes. The answer is yes, he is both things. And, and so understanding that God is in perfect balance with himself. And so as his creation, we too should be in balance. We need to find a balance in our lives. And, and that's a tough thing to do. And I explained it this morning in a way that an old pastor explained it to me once. And he stood on one foot and he said, now look at me, am I in balance? And everyone's room like, yeah, you're not falling over. So you're in balance. He goes, am I ever truly in balance? 
He goes, everyone stand up, stand on one foot. And so everyone in the room did. We're not going to do that tonight, but you can try it later at home when no one's looking. But if you stand on one foot, I want you to notice this. Your ankle is constantly making adjustments. It never sits steady. It never sits in one place. You're always making little adjustments to stay in balance. So too is life. You're never fully completely in balance without making little adjustments all the time. Because we as human beings who are imperfect, we get caught up in this situation where we're not, um, we're not like God. We're not perfectly steady and holy and all these things. We're in this maturity process. We're in this process that scripture calls sanctification. And as we move forward in that, we should be getting better at being in balance, but we're always making little adjustments to our life. And so when you think you got it, you don't got it. You know, when you think you got this thing nailed down, it's just like when you feel like, finally, I can rest. My career is settled. My life is perfect. All of my children are happy. And, and uh, people should chuckle because I have five kids. And if everyone's happy at one moment, that is a sacred moment, not lifestyle. That's only going to last for a few seconds. You know, like, and so we understand that there's always going to be this adjustment thing going on. And we see it affirmed in scripture that maturity is not going to be this state that we reach here. It happens when we get to the end. Full maturity happens when we get to the end. Oftentimes in the New Testament, if you look at the Greek word for maturity, it's actually can be translated as perfection as well. And so maturity or becoming completely mature, this is a process that God's taking us through in this life. And we see this, that maturity is much more like a mountain climb than it is a nice afternoon stroll on a straight lane with, you know, the fall colors and the perfect 75 degree temperature. You know, it's more like the mountainous climb, you know, and I've had so many guys on our mountain, mountain climbing trips look at me and be like, I thought this would be more fun. You know, I was like, well, it wouldn't build care. I, I give him the dad answer. It wouldn't be build character if it was. <laughs> Let's go, you know. But like, it, it's, you know, if you're going to do something that's worth doing, it's going to be difficult. And, and if you're going to achieve something, it's going to take a struggle to get there. And, and maturity is like that. If you want to see yourself grow, you're not going to remove yourself from difficulty. You're going to press into difficulty and rely on the strength of God to get you to the end. Whatever that end may be. We know in the ultimate and its glory with him. But in this life, it could go down some pathways that we wouldn't choose for ourselves if we were given the choice. So let me present it this way in the context of church. And I won't go much farther in introduction. I apologize. But we, let's think about it this way. When it comes to the health of the church, I want you to think about stagnant water. Have you ever smelled standing water? Like water that doesn't flow? It's awful. It's really, really bad. It's basically sewage. Um, if it's left there long enough with no current flowing through it and it just sits there and fills up with bacteria, it smells, it's horrible. I've stepped in it, it left its mark. And so if you, if you think about it in that way, that stagnant water is bad for you, you know, when, when you do any kind of outdoorsy stuff, you don't want to fill up your, you know, your water bottle from standing water. It's a very bad idea unless you got a truckload of iodine with you. You know, you just don't want to do it. So I compare that when you think about standing water that's just sitting there and doesn't have any current flowing through it. That's what the church is like when they grow complacent. A complacent church is standing water. Because they're not actually doing anything about what they're learning, about what they're taking in from the word of God. They're just sitting there and they're deteriorating. They're just breaking down. They're not actually staying in motion. There's no freshness coming in. There's no Holy Spirit that's taking because if the Holy Spirit is active, we're going to be moving. Read 
the gospel or the gospel of James. Read the letter that James wrote. If you read what James wrote, that's exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about faith without works and how it's dead. You, if you really believe something, you take action. You do something about it. You know, and if you're ever in a relationship with somebody and they're like, I love you, but they never do anything to show you that they love you, guess what? They don't love you. Because if you love somebody, you take action. You do something about it. And that's why God says, I love you. And we say, how much? And he says, this much. Here's my son. I'll send Jesus. I'll send you the most precious thing to me. I'll send you the most precious sacrifice that could ever be given to show you how much I love you. Because God's love and God's heart has movement to it. There's action behind it. It's not standing. It's got a current. And God's word is a current that carries us along to maturity so long as we succumb to the current. So long as we give into that. So if we are in obedience to God and we want to go on to maturity, we have to be a church that has movement. We have to be people that move and that grow and that continue that climb. And so I I asked this a lot of my youth kids when I was a youth pastor. I asked them, how uncomfortable are you willing to be? How uncomfortable are you willing to be? Because we worship comfort. We worship being comfortable. We worship not being distracted, not being poked at. You know, if, if, if I was to ask you if you rejoice in being bothered, I don't expect you to say yes. You know, I wouldn't expect you to be like, when are you just feeling like God's joy is just percolating in your life, Mike? When do you feel like that is? I'd be like, when I can be alone and at peace, like I can just sit and not have distraction in my life or be, you know, like have calamity going on around me. That's when I feel like, but it's like, wait a second. How many times in scripture are we told as we're about to be that we should be rejoicing in suffering, that we should be rejoicing in hardship it's very contrary to think that we, sh- that, that we represent Christ well when we're just relaxed and at peace and sitting in a chair, even though that's what I seek is comfort. Um, how uncomfortable are we willing to be so that others can see Christ in us, which is the hope of glory? He reveals himself through our struggle, through our suffering. And so here at the end of chapter one in Colossians, Paul's going to reveal that in his own life. And he's going to basically set up the church in Colossae to see that what they're seeing in these other religions around them is actually setting them up for failure. It's standing water, if you will. And he's going to show them, this is how you've learned Christ from me. This is how you go forward. This is how you mature. And we as a church want to mature. And so we should take note of some of these agents of maturity that the Lord has introduced to our life. And I like calling them agents of maturity because it's an awesome way of saying stuff that's not going to be fun. <laughs> right? Agents of maturity are not often things that you're going to enjoy, but it's the same thing as mom and dad always said, and they were absolutely right. Hardship builds character. Difficulty builds maturity. And we didn't grow from being at leisure. Those of us who are adults, we didn't grow from being at leisure. We know this. We grew through the times that were really hard. And so we shouldn't shirk away from those things. We need to step forward and allow God to empower us to do them. So Colossians chapter one, beginning in verse 24, let's read this section and then we'll just kind of break it down and talk about some things that Paul points out here. So beginning in verse 24, we left off in 23 a couple weeks ago, back here in 24, Paul continues. Now I rejoice, he says, in my sufferings for you, and I'm completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. 
I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. For I want you to know how greatly I'm struggling for you, for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me in person. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And, and you know, we've pointed this out as we've gone through this study in Colossians. Paul speaking to a group of people in his culture, in his society, when he's talking about how all the, the mysteries of, of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, we'll talk about this at the end, he's calling out teachings of that day. He's even using Greek words that they would use, the Gnostics would, to basically say that the higher power of knowledge and wisdom is hidden and unfindable by human beings. And Paul's like using the same word for hidden in the Greek for Jesus. He's saying, no, 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 it's hidden in Christ, which means that it's a secret that's revealed. It's not a secret that's concealed. It's a secret that's revealed in Jesus. And he goes, do you want to know? Then you need Jesus. He's directing them back to where they should have been this whole time. And so he's kind of building up to that. And as we picked up in verse 24, you know, Paul is great at making me feel like a total loser sometimes. And it's not to condemn me, but it just makes me feel like I'm really not living up to my calling. When Paul says stuff like, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you. I don't like suffering for my own benefit, let alone suffering for other people's benefit. That's really hard when it's like, wait a second, I'm going through it so that you can grow. What about Hmm. Right. When Paul says that he rejoices in his sufferings and he says, I'm completing in my flesh what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body. Don't take that to mean that he's in some way completing the work of salvation that Jesus did. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this. Jesus died to save the church. We know this. That's Paul's affirmed it over and over again in his writings. But the church must be increased. And the church must be extended. And that's where not only Paul comes in, but we do as well. Because when we rejoice in sufferings for others, we're putting first the growth of the body of Christ. We're putting first the growth of other people. And I don't know if, if you guys are like this. I know I am certainly like this. I struggle to put in the hardship, put in the time on the hardship to grow personally, let alone going through hardship so other people can grow, so that the church can grow and flourish. And that's where God wants to take us, being willing to suffer for other people's sake. Now think about it. When I, if, if we can get to that place, who are we like when we get to the place where we're willing to suffer for other people's sake? You're like Jesus. You're becoming like Christ when you get to that place. No wonder Paul is encouraging the church to get on to this type of maturity. We'll read it in a second from Philippians when we get there. I'm going to quote a passage from Philippians that basically says, we need to be mature in our thinking in the same way. This is where he's taking us, is to be like him. And there is so much pointless suffering in our world. There is so much suffering that has no point. 
people going through things that they never had to go through. Sin has affected us so much and people suffer for so many things that, you know, do you ever have a, you ever had a friend that you looked at and were like, don't do that. Most of the time I think of this, I think of a relationship. Don't do that. You're only going to get hurt. This person's only going to hurt you. This is only going to be a detriment. Do you ever look at a friend like square in the face and go, I care about you. Don't do this. It's not going to turn out well. And they go and do it and it doesn't turn out well. And you don't laugh at them because you love them. And, and, you, and you wanted what was best from them in the beginning. But it's heartbreaking, isn't it? It was suffering for no reason. There is so much pointless suffering in this world because of sinful choices and because of lack of reason. And we see it when we walk around in our world. You know, we see it when we're walking down the street and you should walk down the street. We should be people that get out of the norm, that get out and walk around and interact with people in our community. I don't know about you guys. I guess we could do a show of hands. How many of you love your routine? I love my routine. I like to do things the same way, a certain way. I like to be in a flow. I like to feel like I'm getting things done. I like to make, I'm sick. I like to make little things on my reminder list for a day just so I can check them off. I swear by the time I'm 60, I'm gonna put breathing on there. Like it's gonna get that bad. Like I love checking those boxes and that's how I am. I'm very organized in my mind like that. And so it's seriously gonna be like, go to the bathroom, breathe, eat, laugh. Like all these types of things are like, dude, I am just checking boxes all day long. Super accomplished I am. But here's the thing. Do you know what's crazy is often if I was to look at my reminders list and go down and go, how many of these things actually had a really awesome impact for the kingdom? Are they important? Sure. But how many of those things had an awesome impact for the kingdom of God, as opposed to when I travel and I get to talk to people who are stuck talking to me because they're on the same flight or I'm in an airport and I start interacting with someone or, you know, you just, you walk down the street, you sit on a bench and someone's sitting there and you strike up a conversation with them. You know, we have so many opportunities to be involved in other people's lives and to be in the world. And it's so funny because we know the world in the world and not of it, right? We know that saying here, here's the truth. Christians are not of this world, but we are sent into it. Are you actually living in the world? Not conforming to it. There's plenty of scriptures talking about don't conform to the world, Romans 12 too. But if you want to look at what we're called to be, we're called to be sent into the world. And if we're just hanging out with other believers on Sundays and then going about our business and we're never out there actually sharing with anybody, we are a Christian country club. That's all we are. And we should immediately dissolve into something else. We cannot become a Christian country club. We are a church and the church is missional. The church wants to get out there and interact with people. And that goes for pastors. That goes for children's ministry directors. That goes for people who just attend. By the way, the whole church should be serving together. That's what we do. We all have gifts. We all have things that we can give to the, to the body to be a part of this. And, and here's the thing. We shouldn't just be doing that here. We should be out there. We should be out there doing it. I encourage you to step out of the norm. I, I know that God has blessed me when I have. And it's funny because I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. It's out, of my, it's out of my routine. I don't get to check a box when it's like, oh, I didn't have a box on my reminder list for meet weird guy in airport and have conversation about Islam. You know, like I, it's, the, you, just, you just have these kind of conversations. I had a guy look at me in, in uh, where was I? I was in Amsterdam. I was in Amsterdam and I'm sitting there and this guy's like, so what do you, you know, it was, it was Amsterdam, right? I was talking to one guy. 
Yeah. Yeah. He asked about our phone plan and started talking about Jesus. And so we, <laughs> I got there, but, but the thing is, is that somehow they, these two watched me do it a lot on that trip. But, but with, with all these people, I started interacting with guys like I'm converting to Islam. I'm like, why? You know, we start having this conversation about it. It wasn't uncivil. He wasn't rude to me. He definitely wanted to stop talking to me at one point and I wouldn't let him. And we actually got to a really good place. I really enjoyed talking to him. Um, but it, it, we need to put ourselves in these kind of situations. Um, and get out of that place because we recognize as believers that there is so much needless suffering in the world and it should break our hearts. It should break our hearts that there's needless suffering and we should be willing to suffer that will produce fruit. Being out there and putting ourselves in places of compromise is suffering on behalf of someone else and that makes us Christ-like. So extension of the kingdom will require suffering. And do we rejoice in those things, as Paul talks about here, because we are partaking in Christ's sufferings? Are we rejoicing in it because we're actually being a part of what Jesus started and what he continues to do through his church? Typically, we rejoice in peace and rest. And, and I think that that's okay. I'm not saying, by the way, don't ever be at peace, don't ever rest. You should. You should. God gave us a Sabbath day. Remember, the Sabbath was for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. It's actually a good thing that you rest. But we shouldn't be seeking out that rest all the time when God is giving us opportunity to minister to people. And the church, for us, you guys, the brightest we can shine and reflect Christ is when we rejoice in suffering. That's the revelation of his power within us. Not when we rejoice when things are good. Rejoicing in suffering reveals his power. That's what he told Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. He said, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Not, I kind of shine through you. He goes, no, no, no. When I'm weak, he shines powerfully, perfectly through me. And he goes, so I'm going to rejoice in this weakness so that even more so he can shine through me and use me. Philippians 1.29 is, is a reminder that most people don't like reading in scripture where it says, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. You know, if you're listening to a, 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 a televangelist on TV, go on about how Christians should never suffer. Christians should never be poor. Christians should never have hardship. I beg of you, read the New Testament. Like just, just read the Bible. That's not the case in scripture. They're preaching something completely different because it says here, we are going to suffer. Jesus said that he goes, you will suffer because if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And if you're not receiving persecution for your faith, you're probably not being very Christ-like. And that's not a condemnation. That's a challenge. That's a challenge to be Christ-like. That's a challenge to get out there and to really show people what the Lord is capable of doing. Um, we shouldn't view suffering as a punishment. Um, it's an honor that's given to sons and daughters of Christ. William Barclay said it this way, to suffer in the service of Christ is not a penalty, but a privilege for just sharing in his work. I encourage all of you to take the live, laugh, love off your wall and to put not a penalty, but a privilege. Not a penalty, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to suffer alongside Christ. If we hate the suffering, it could be that we're more concerned with our own work rather than his. We can't see the end result, we're just looking at our own selves. And I'm not saying that this is easy, church. This is not easy, this is hardcore Christianity. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we change from being people who are walking in flesh to people who are walking in spirit, because you can't do this in flesh. You can only do this in the spirit. 
We need to see things through God's eyes. And so Paul continues in verse 25. He says, for the church, he says, I become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me, notice this, for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I love that. Christ in you, the hope of glory. God's love and mercy was never intended to be the property of one nation or one people. That was never its intent. And go, well, God chose Israel. Yeah. Do you know what he chose Israel to do? To walk with him and to be a light to the nations around them. That was their calling. They were to be the light to the nations around them. They were to set up shop in the promised land and turn that light on. You're like, what about all the other nations? They were to be judged for their idolatry. They've been given all the time that God was going to give them. They were put out because they were the ones who were sacrificing their children to idols and doing horrible things. And God's people were both to reflect his justice and then his grace to the nations around them that remained as this is what our God can do. You should come and see. They were to be a light to the nations. And so Paul's commission was to take the message of hope in Christ to the Gentiles and to reveal that the word of God was for them as well. The hope of the gospels for all people. Calls com- Paul's commissioning, not calls permissioning. Paul's commissioning. It's a tough language, English. Um, it was given to him for whom? Did you notice that? According to God's commission that was given to me for you. Interesting thought. That word commission could also be stewardship if you read the ESV. Um, it's, it's translated stewardship, which is the same, means the same thing. God entrusted Paul with the task of fully expounding the truth of his word to the church of the unity that comes with faith in Jesus. The fact is that the only thing in this world, which is for everyone is Christ. The only thing in this world that is for everyone is Christ. Not everyone is a musician. You know, this, you have many friends that have tried. You know, not everyone's a musician. Not everyone is an expositor. Not everyone is a accountant. Not everyone is is a baseball player. We get this, right? You're like baseball. Not everyone's a football player. Fine. Like whatever it is, not everyone can do the same things, but there's one thing that we all share the need for. And that is for everyone. And that's Jesus. We have a commonality in Christ. He is for all. He is for all. We all have that common need and the offer to receive the fulfillment of that need is Jesus. He's the one that answers that need for us. God makes known to all people through his word the glorious wealth of his revealed mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I think it's interesting that when Paul talks about this mystery, and he really expounds on it in the letter to the Galatians, he talks about it extensively there about this mystery because the Jewish people thought that it was for them, that it wasn't for the Gentiles. The Gentiles were outcasts. Many of them believing Gentiles were the fuel that was going to keep the fires of hell going. You know, that, that that's what they were for. They were no good for anything. God's like, no, I love them. I love them. And you're supposed to be taking the truth to them. And, and it's, it's a warning, isn't it? That's always a warning for me as a church. Because sometimes we can act entitled like that. This is for me. We're so, we're so chosen. I've never been so chosen before. You know, like you ever, don't get stuck up in your Christianity. You're not that chosen, right? 
God chose you because of his grace, not your good looks. And that's how it works for me. Thank the Lord. You're like, oh, this is good looks space. All of us leave. Like we're, we're done, right? Like it's not going to, that's, that's not, he didn't choose me because of my awesome skill set. I don't have one. The reason he chose me is because he loves me. And if you're wondering, anyone right now in this room or listening on a podcast someday that's not 2020 and is listening like, I wonder if God's chosen me. He has. If you're wondering if God has chosen you, he has. Your questioning of that, you're just asking that question means that he has chosen you. Receive him right now. Say yes right now. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, as far as it was possible, God reconciled himself to all men meaning that his hand is going all the way out to people if you would just reach up and receive it, if you would just accept it. That's the God that we serve. And here's the thing. God has commissioned us on behalf of others to do this job. He gave Paul a commission that was given to him for other people. God said, this is what I want you to do. Make my word fully known. Do you know you have to understand what it says before you can make it fully known? That's for you teachers. You know, you ever had a teacher in a class that had no idea what they were talking about? You're like, oh, why would I listen to you? You don't even know what these, how these numbers connect. You're really struggling with this information yourself. <laughs> There's students right now smirking at me. It's like, uh, I don't mean to open up a whole can of worms, but like we've all been in that situation. Here's the thing. When it comes to making the gospel fully known, making the truth of God's word fully known, we have to understand it first. We should be students of it first so that we can rightly expound it. And that's why Paul encouraged Timothy in that way in his letter to Timothy. He goes, you need to be able to rightly divide the word of truth. You need to be able to expound on it and teach it to people. The goal is not to just understand. The goal is to have operational understanding, not only living out or but able to explain and to teach other people. That's for all of us, Christian. And so God makes known to all people through his word the glorious wealth of his revealed mystery. We need to take the message to the world. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. What you're looking for is not something out there. It's something he wants to do in here. He wants to populate your heart. Christ lives in you. And that gives you the assurance of sharing in his glory, salvation. And so... He continues in verse 28 and he says this, we proclaim him. I'll finish reading this, but just I want you to think about those three words. We proclaim him. He says, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. You know, it's it's three words that you could spend three hours on. We proclaim him because We could spend a lot of time talking about all the things in this life that we proclaim. All the things that we proclaim to people about our life, about who we are, about what we're going to do or how we're going to do it. Think about how often we have proclaimed self. You know, if, if you haven't experienced this, I'll give you the privilege and the honor of coming into a summer camp cabin full of boys. And, and you will get to hear lots of proclamations, right? And usually it's fuel for all the leaders of who they're going to show up on the sports field, you know, because these guys are talking all big about themselves or whatever. But like you understand like self-proclamation is not only not what we're here for, it's idolatry. It's self-worship. And we don't want any part of that. Paul says it simply, we proclaim him, 
Jesus. That's what we're here to proclaim as a church. And he says, we warn and we teach. And and here's the thing, uh, just before we get away from the, the proclamation of Christ, is that what we're all about? Because our social media should reflect it. Our music should reflect it. Our writing should reflect it. Our words should reflect it. Our jobs should reveal it. The way that we do our work should even reveal what we're proclaiming. You proclaim it through not only what you say, but what you do and how you think. Even how you go about your day. You're proclaiming something. Think about how you go about your day and whether that's about you or other people or about Jesus. Everything that we do should proclaim him. The beginning of our maturity, I say the beginning of our maturity, is the proclamation of Jesus. That's where we just start to grow into who he's made us to be, putting him first. Because when you start proclaiming Christ, oh baby, are we going to grow there? I should write a song called that, oh baby, we're going to grow there. You're like, well, you're talking about everything you do should be you know, proclaiming Jesus, write a song about it. Okay, I will. You're going to love it. Here's the thing. Inside of that proclamation, <laughs> maybe you won't. Inside that, it won't be a country song, so we got a better chance now. Oh, I took a slam, and yeah, that's right. Took a pot shot at country. I'll cut it out of the podcast. Um, within that proclamation of Jesus, you're going to find some key things. This is all part of maturity. Um, you're going to find some key things inside that proclamation. There's warning, and there's going to be teaching. There's going to be warning and teaching. Okay, being faithful to warn and teach always has to be part of our proclamation of Christ because we're warning them about their separation from him and we're teaching them about why they need to be connected to him. We're revealing to them the truth of God. Now, I want you to notice this. Warning and threatening are not the same thing. There are a lot of churches that threaten. There's a lot of Christians that threaten. We are not to threaten. Last time I checked, God wasn't threatening mankind by sending his son right? And if you read scripture, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, not his harshness, right? And, and so we have to understand some people go, well, the God of the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament. It's the same God. You see his justice, you see his mercy. You see his righteousness and holiness, you see his grace. And so it's the same God. It's not disconnected from itself. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what we do when we read the scriptures of the Old Testament, we think that God is harsh is we misunderstand them. We're misunderstanding them. Because Paul explained it earlier in Colossians where he said, God loved you so much to send his son. God loves people. It was his plan from the beginning to send Jesus to save people. God cares about people. He cares about every single person in this room and the whole world for that matter. But a lot of times, I don't like saying it in the whole world context because that makes us feel very disconnected, doesn't it? God loves the whole world. And you're like, oh, great. That makes me feel special. But it's true to say as well that God loves you individually. He loves you personally. That he handcrafted you. If we take scripture to be true, that means that he knit you together inside of your mama. That's a weird way to say it, but I'm going to say it that way right? He actually did that. He put you together. You're like, why didn't he do a better job? You know, like that's called sin. Okay. But here's the thing. God actually made you. And so some of the things that you may dislike about yourself are things that he wants to use for his glory. God doesn't threaten. It's, and we, we can't misrepresent God's uh, heart towards people when we proclaim Christ. Christ. 
We need to represent his heart accurately. He doesn't threaten people. He loves people. He does warn them because he loves them. How many of you understand that if you love somebody, you warn them? You know, don't do that. You're going to get hurt, right? As, an, as a parent, I implore you. Or as one of my youth kids looking at me about to jump off something high, Mike, we implore you. Well, the ones that love me, don't do this. The ones who hate me are like, go! Right? <laughs> yeah, you laugh. <laughs> you can do it, Mike. One torn ACL later. No, that was all on me. That was my fault. Nobody put me up to that. That was just trying to be awesome. And it worked the first time. It didn't work the second time. You guys, <laughs> I was like, never revel in past glories. I'm ready to go on to some new dissertation. Um, you guys, remember what we talked about in our previous studies? The Father loves human beings. He proved it through Jesus. If you ever wonder, does God love me? His answer is Jesus. His answer will always be Jesus. I sent Christ for you. Yes, I love you. It was the greatest offering of love I could ever show. Remember what we talked about. He didn't threaten. He provided so when we warn and teach and we plead and intercede, we do so as 2 Corinthians 5 states as well, be reconciled to God. That's our message. It's not a message of God hates you. It's a message of God wants you to be right with him. You know, I have to do things my own way. Your way sucks. It absolutely is terrible. Your way is not the way it's going to get done. Your way is not the way to heaven. Your ideals, your will, the things that you want to do, like, well, I have to be me. I have to, you know. No, it's going to ruin you. It's going to ruin you. Listen to reason. God's way is the best. That's not me telling you my opinion. That's me telling you what the Bible says and what is absolutely proven. It's fact. And I'll tell you this much, on my part, I wish it wasn't true sometimes because I would love to do things my own way. And there is a strong desire sometimes inside of me to do things my own way. It's absolutely sinful and wrong. I don't preach this stuff because I like it all the time. I preach it because it's true. And we have to be real about that. We have to be real about it. We have to recognize and remember just in your upbringing, it's the same thing. Just because you didn't like what authority said didn't make them wrong. In fact, the fact that you didn't like it might have meant that it was a good chance they were right. God loves you enough to say, be reconciled. You're out of line. He warns. And he calls you to himself because he loves you. The goal of good biblical teaching and godly wisdom is to cause us to mature in these ways, to stop kicking against him, to stop trying to do things our own way. The word of God provides the clarity of truth we need to press forward to grow and mature until he completes the work that he began in us and he will. Because Philippians 1.6 said he's going to finish the work he's began in you. If you stay the course, stick it out. Don't grow weary in doing good. Galatians 6.9 continue on. You're going to reap. The season will come where you will see the product of putting in the time and doing the right thing. And just because we look and go, I'm just not seeing anything come from this. I quit. Listen to the old blues song. Quitter never wins. It's true. Quitter never wins. You're never going to win if you quit. And Paul describes his drive forward by saying his goal is to know Jesus more. If I don't understand what it is that I need to get done, I need to know Jesus more so that I understand or so that I trust him that much. Our goal is to know Jesus, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. 
And then he says this, he says that in, in Philippians chapter three, and then he continues in Philippians 12 or three verses 12 through 15. It's on the screen. Not that I've already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Notice verse 15, therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And notice what he says afterwards, and if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In other words, let yourself be directed by God. Let your heart be changed by him. I ask that no one listen to me if I'm saying things of my own authority. But if these things are being said on the authority of who God is and his word, then heed the warning, listen to it, and let God adjust your heart to his. God is not a supplement that you add to your life. Jesus is not an addition. He's not an add-on of your equipment. He becomes your all in all. Everything in your life comes alongside to encourage your walk with him. He becomes your identity. That's who we are in Jesus. We're new creations. Maturity is the result of pressing forward into what God has called you to, not looking back to what's in the past. Do not let your past condemn you. Do not let your past condemn you and do not let your past drag you back into sin again. Paul says this over and over again. He says it in that passage in Philippians, forgetting what lay behind. Forget what's behind. Not forget it and make the same mistake. Notice, it's forget and move forward into newness. Move forward into the calling that God has on your life. You learn from it. You learn from mistakes, but don't dwell on them. Because you as a Christian, if you are in Christ, should never feel condemned. There is no condemnation. Read Romans 8, 1 until that gets stuck in your head. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You walk in the spirit, not according to the flesh. Don't let your past condemn you. We are to be living examples of this and be able to teach others without hypocrisy, meaning that we've left things in the past. We're walking in newness of life and now we can help others. And that's what Jesus warned about at the end of the sermon. Well, not the end of the Sermon on the Mount, but the third chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. You know, the judge not lest you be judged. That's the uh, verse that gets thrown in your face most often as a Christian. If only they read the rest of the chapter. Um, but verse two is interesting because it says, before you help someone out with the splinter that's in their eye, you need to remove the log that's in your own eye. That's what he's talking about. Don't be hypocritical. But notice what he says. First deal with what's in your eye so that you may help your brother with what's in his eye. In fact, what he's telling you is you just need, you need to be helping people with their struggle with sin, but not doing it in, hypocr in hypocrisy. You need to be helping them with their stuff. You need to be walking through. Galatians 6 is the furtherance of that idea. Okay, one note for the young, and then we're going to move past this a little bit. Um, and for the young, I'm saying anything under 30. <laughs> like, what's young? Uh, any, anyone under 30? Age does not necessarily dictate maturity. Warren Wearsby said that. It's one of my favorite quotes of all time. Age does not necessarily dictate maturity. Now, older guys chuckle at this one often. Go, <laughs> got that right. You know, like, because we act like children half the time. But, but here's the point of that. It doesn't mean that you're mature just because you're old. And it doesn't mean you're immature just because you're young. It goes both directions. 
you can be a very mature young person. The difference maker is how close your relationship with Christ is. If you are walking with the Lord, you can be one of the most mature people in the room at a very young age. And I encourage young people to do that, to be that person who's young but wise in the Lord because he will use what many people will look at you and, and want to discount your youth. He's going to use you like he used Timothy. And that's why Paul said, let no one despise your youth. Let no one look at your youth and say that you don't have a voice. If you are wise in the Lord, you have something to say. Jesus was wise at about 10, 13 years old. Wise enough to look at his parents and go, why were you looking around me for me for like three days? Didn't you know I'd be here in the temple doing my father's work? He was, he was like baffled at them when they're like, we haven't, we've been looking for you for three days. They lost God. How often does that happen? You know, like you're, you just lose God. I mean, like they left him in Jerusalem. They get halfway home. They're like, uh, Jesus is not in the caravan. Boy, I tell you what, you feel like really, you know, irresponsible parents in that moment. We left the savior, you know, and then they go back and he's like, where did you think I would be? You know, I don't think he's being like rude about it. He's like, I'm here. Jesus was wise as a child. His spirit's in you. You can be wise as a child as well. Okay, that's all I'm going to say. Paul states this in verse 29, continuing on. Then we'll finish up the first section of chapter two quickly. He says, that's why I work. I'm reading the New Living Translation for verse 29. That's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. He goes, I'm working hard and I struggle so hard because I'm depending on God's power to get me through it. I'm not depending on my own strength. Are you frustrated with your effectiveness in this life? You're depending on your own strength. And that's not a condemnation. That's a reminder. There is limitless strength available to you in Christ to get done whatever you're facing, to get that done in a way that glorifies him, that rejoices in whatever situation it is. He has given you his limitless powerful strength to work in you. He's offering that to you. If you would accept it and do it. His mighty power is ever available for us church and the power of the savior is for us to depend on and rely on in our weakest moments. Okay. Let's look at the first three verses of chapter two and we'll close up. He says this, for I want you to know how greatly I'm struggling for you, for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me in person. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's interesting to note when he says in verse one, he says, I want you to know how greatly I'm struggling for you. That Greek word is agon. It's where we get agonized from. Um, so you could, you could say that this struggle is not just like a, it's not just like he's going through a tough thing with this. He's agonizing over it. It's a very deep struggle. And so you kind of get to this point where you're like, okay, Paul's going to battle for a church family that he's never met. He didn't plant this church. Um, he has never been present there. So he's never been in this region before. He's connected to them through other believers. And he's also currently imprisoned in Rome waiting for his trial before Nero. And so how is Paul agonizing, agon, struggling for this church when he's not physically there? How he, how, what, so clearly we know this isn't a physical struggle. It may, it may feel physical at times. You felt that kind of internal turmoil that's like manifesting, you know, physically. We know what stress can do to the body in that way. So what is he, what is he, how is he struggling for them on their behalf? I, I just submit to you, there's a couple options. One, it could be his study and preparation of writing this letter. 
That could be it. But I think most likely we already know what it is. Where is he struggling? How is he struggling for them? In spirit and prayer. It's inside and he's He's, he's battling in prayer. He's laboring in prayer. Paul said this in many of his letters. I'm laboring in prayer for you. Um, prayer can be a battleground. And I'll say this. I think it should be a battleground for us more than it is. We should not just be praying in a way that's, thank you, God, for this meatloaf and for the glass of water that accompanies it. If that's all our prayer life consists of, Congratulations on your meatloaf, Christian. You know, like, like I mean, that should be on a t-shirt. <laughs> but you guys understand, like, you should be praying in a way that it's actually laborious. It's, it's difficult. It's, it's a battleground. Are you going to battle for people in prayer? Um, the finest of soldiers in the Christian faith are forged on that ground and prove themselves on that ground. I really think that if you were to have like an award ceremony for Christian believers where they like would be called out for their greatness, it wouldn't be the people you'd expect. It'd be that little sweet old lady that prays for everyone in the church night and day. It'd be the people that are forged in the fires of prayer because prayer is so much more important and so much more vital to us than we give, than we give it credit for. And I want to encourage you guys to be people who are forged in the fires of prayer. Prayer aligns our hearts with God and prayer moves the hand of God according to his will, not ours. And the cool thing is, is that I really do believe that when you see people pray for things, he wants his people to pray so that he can work. And you're like, so if I ask God to do something and I pray for it, he'll do it. Not your thing. You see, if you're really praying and if you are struggling and battling in prayer, your heart's going to align with his, which means that when he moves, you're with him. You see, it's like expecting to have a vibrant relationship with somebody. When we don't spend time in prayer with the Lord, we expect to have a vibrant relationship with him um, like we expect to have a vibrant relationship with you know, our significant other and think that that's actually going to happen if we don't talk to him. You know, how's your relationship? Solid. It's great. It's a great relationship. We're so close. We're soulmates. How often do you talk to him? Once a month. What do you talk about? The weather and the meatloaf. <laughs> right? Come on. That's not a healthy relationship. Healthy relationship is intimacy. It takes time. It takes effort. You know, if you ask a, a, a couple... How hard is it to be married for 30, 40 years? They're not going to look and go, it's a breeze. So easy. It's the easiest thing I've ever done. What is it? It's hard. It's hard work. It's difficulty. It's sticking with it. It's, it's investing. It's doing things that you don't want to do sometimes. Like, yes, I will go with you to the store, to Walmart, if, if need be. Lord, help me. See, you're in prayer already. But here's the thing, you guys, like if, if we want something to be fruitful, if we want something to be healthy, we have to invest time in it. Prayer is the same thing and we need to battle in prayer. And I'm so ashamed when I read the writings of, of the church fathers, you know, the, the founders of the faith, you know, read these guys all throughout the church ages. They're like, you know, Martin Luther, I can't begin my day without four hours in prayer. I'm like, 
I can't begin my week without four hours. How's that? Like throughout the week, can we spread this out a little bit? Like that's insane. Four hours of prayer. And he's like, if it's a tough day, he said this, if it's a tough day, six hours of prayer. Like, Oh my gosh. I'm a horrible believer, a horrible Christian. That's condemnation. We can't live there. But you guys understand that we want to get to the place where 10 minutes turns into an hour because we love being with him because we love being with the Lord in prayer. You realize that when you put the work, when you put the labor into a relationship, you actually just love being with that person. When you're there to serve, when they're to invest in it, you just want to be there all the time. That's the kind of relationship that God wants with us. And we find that in prayer. I think Paul's revealing his labor for the church in prayer here. And he wasn't able to teach in person or combat in person the teachings that the, the Colossians were facing at this time. But what he could do was pray. And he could agonize in that prayer. Not meaning they was tearing him apart. Meaning that he was struggling through it and crying out to God on their behalf. And I want to remind you of something. The time had come for Paul in this situation with this church where he couldn't do himself what he he wanted to see happen for them. And so he had to do something important. What he couldn't do for himself, he had to let God do. What we cannot do for ourselves, we have to leave to God to do those things. That's difficult, isn't it? A lot of times I want to be the one who controls my destiny, changes, turns the tide. What we cannot do ourselves, we have to leave in God's hands to do. And so he desired for this church to be encouraged, built up in courage, a courageous church, joined together in love, as verse 2 says, so all the riches of complete understanding and knowledge um, of God's mystery, Christ would be made available to them, would be real to them. And so he says, in him you see all the hidden are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's saying all that you're looking for is in Jesus. And it's awesome to think about how the truth of Christianity is not a secret which is hidden, but it's a secret that's revealed. It's revealed in Christ. It's not something that's being held away from you. It's something that's available to you in Jesus. It's there for the taking. I hope it encourages you guys to press forward into the Lord. Um, to press forward into Christ and to really seek after him and know that he wants that relationship with you. He wants that closeness with you. He keeps calling out to you. He keeps standing at the door knocking, wanting to spend time with us. And if we invest in that, he's going to grow us. He's going to take us onto the maturity that the word of God calls us to if we invest in him. So um, I want to give you guys a chance just uh, to bow our heads together, to take a moment and quiet and to let the Lord speak to our hearts. And we're going to go into a time of worship to close. And um, let's just take a moment. Let's bow our heads together. And let's just let the Lord speak to us. And then we'll, uh, we'll worship together.